Are you a little bit annoyed um, of me talking about all the things I miss? Wait, say that again? Okay. No, no, I'm not. No, I love it. I'm fascinated by it. <laughs> I do research on all of your, all of the things that you miss. Well, I have been talking about beer quite a bit. <laughs> yeah? You, you are German after all. Why is it so loud? Oh, it's a car. It's a very old car. It's... I would say that is a 1974 Chevy, Chevy El Silverado. That just stalled. People have uh, complimented us on the atmosphere that we create, or that the city creates. So that is certainly one part of it. So besides beer, what, what Germans miss when they leave their country is, what they miss most is bread. And that is true also in Mexico. Unfortunately, like in all other countries in the world, except for some in Central Europe, there is no good bread here. Everything's white, everything's full of air, and um, that's it. But fortunately, we live in a very large city and in a very cosmopolitan city that has a lot of uh, international people living here and also a lot of international chains. And one of these chains uh, we are visiting today it's called Le Pain Quotidien. I think it's Belgian, but it certainly also exists in New York City. I know that. And they do bake good bread. Um, downside is they have two types of bread that I like to eat. So that's instead of having 25,000 uh, uh, different breads, like in Germany, we have two of which I like one better, and Catherine doesn't eat that one at all, and only eats the other one, but... Yeah. Which kind is that? I like the with the nuts. They have walnut, walnut bread. That's pretty good. Or is it walnut? I don't know. Some kind of nut. And that's where we are today. Are we in the... No, we've been to the Condesa. Have we been? Or was that all Roma Norte? I don't think so. This is our first, I was about to yeah. comment that this is our first jaunt into Condesa and we're on the, we've gone from one emblematic street out of Alba Oregon to <laughs> Calle Amsterdam. Yeah. So, it, it, the, which is, I think, one of the most beautiful streets in Mexico that has no end. Because it has it's no a, end. It's a, it's a gigantic circle because... Condesa was built, it, this specifically is Hipodromo Condesa, which used to be a racetrack. Yeah. And they kept that sort of, they kept the loop part yeah. of it yeah. when building the neighborhood. And the biggest part of that loop is Calle Amsterdam, which has a beautiful um, camion, a walkway in the middle of the street, which is a very popular jogging track. Yes, it is. Yeah. And as you can maybe hear, popular dog walking dog walking we often come here to take a walk to just go walking on on sundays or um 
and walk around here, walk around Condesa or Roma Norte. Um, here you can actually walk around without too much traffic. Kaya Amsterdam has almost no traffic, so... Uh, Depending on the time of day, but... Sure. The, the, the times of day that it has a lot of traffic are not the times where there's a lot of traffic in the rest of the city. Yeah. It's, it's unusual in that respect. And when there is a lot of traffic, it's usually because somebody is backing out or somebody left their car <laughs> in the middle of the street or they're trying to park or a Chevy Silverado stalled. Yeah. Good choice. I, I hope me eating the bread isn't going to make you... <laughs> I, I will join you. Oh, okay. Let's, let's share. Because you said oh, you said oh. that you were a little bit you said that you were a little bit ill. Yeah, but bread is good. Bread is good. Okay, bread, bread is bread is fine. Yeah. Bread and okay. beer. No, no, no. No, this from. That's I, I I confident confidently say that I used to be a runner, um, and I want to come one again. Right now, I'm not running really. Um, but if you have a after a really hard run. If it was so hard that your stomach revolts, what helps are two things to get your stomach back in order. And that is bread, dry bread, nothing else, and beer. That will calm down your stomach if you've had too much exercise. Um, yeah, that works. What does not work is uh, Radler. You know that, so the, the mixture of beer and lemonade. That does not work at all. I've tried it. And it, the alcohol in beer isn't even that important. So the, the alcohol does not, it's not bad. But uh, it works with alcohol-free beer too. So that calms down the stomach. Um, and I've had that experience, yes. Get to appreciate beer. <laughs> you definitely fit the German stereotype of the of the beer lover. Yeah, this is the one. This is the uh, Centeno. So that's uh, what's Centeno in English? I think in German it's Roggen. Um, I'm I'm sourdough. I'm just saying because it looks suspiciously like a sourdough slice, but I, I can't really tell from here. I know much more about beer than about bread. So. I know that I'm having the classic baguette. The thing about bread and baking in general in Mexico City is that because of the altitude, yeah. everything's going to be a little bit different. The altitude, the humidity, and all of these things affect anything you're going to make in the city. It affect anything you're going to import into the city. So, which is one of the reasons why tortillas are so popular here. You can't really make tortillas the same way outside of the city as you can here. It's sort of baking where you would at a lower altitude be frying. But... Tortillas are popular in all of Mexico. Aren't they, they? they are, but but here in Mexico City, tortillas, the masa is a little bit different, and the way they're made is a little bit different. 
Okay. They're warm and soft without having that kind of harder, crustier outer layer that when you go elsewhere in Mexico City or elsewhere in the in the country, tacos won't have that warm, doughy feeling as often as they do here in the city. Of course, you can you can duplicate the process in other ways, but there is something to be said special about the way tortillas are prepared here. So that's bread. And we have jam. Marmelada frutas rojos. So red fruit jam. That's mm -hmm. nice. I think this is the perfect meal for me right now. Oh, no, I'm sorry to hear that. So you've got a lot. It's, it, it happens. It happens. It doesn't happen that often, actually. So that I, my something's wrong with my stomach or my my what do you call that intestines. Yeah. But uh, I've had worse. Yeah. And we've got a lot to get to today. We have. We got feedback. You got a lot of feedback. Episode five. Mm -hmm. And let's get to that. Not the kind of feedback I was expecting. I was expecting a lot more hate mail. But you did get some, apparently. I did? Yeah, you tweeted that out. That you, or no, you didn't. You just uh, tweeted that somebody told you that you will get into a lot of trouble because of what you said on episode five. Yeah, because I don't think enough people listen to it. <laughs> that was admittedly clickbait. Yeah, yeah, I saw it like that. That, that was yeah, very, yeah, yeah, very yeah, yeah, admittedly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't, we'll I couldn't tweet that on, or I couldn't toot that on Mastodon, because people would have called me out on it straight away. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I'll, I'll wait to get the emails. Maybe by episode ten, people have figured it out. But our first topic today. Yeah. Tipping. Tipping. Yeah, an Australian guy um, tweeted at me, and he's not a. I don't. I didn't note down his, his Twitter handle, and he didn't have a name. Uh, and he said he basically listened to the podcast and got something out of it for his trip to Mexico City. So he was here on vacation, apparently, or on a business trip, who knows, and uh, learned something about the city from the podcast, which is awesome. Um, our friend Judy asked me, who's the audience of, for this podcast? And my answer was, well, it's me, because I want to record these stories and these things and facts about uh, the city. But um, apparently, also tourists that have come to Mexico City can learn something from it. Maybe at one point we have to um, create a list of topics that we talked about. At one and point, it's going to end up in a Spanish class somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so and he but he asked how you tip here at a restaurant I mean we go to a lot of our restaurants or taco places and we tip so what's your what's your how do you tip what do you tip tipping like everything else in Mexico is complicated <laughs> it's yes. very complicated Uh, so this is an answer for 4Red65 on Twitter, going back in my mentions. If you're, and I thought about this and did a little bit of research, checked out some good advice, some bad advice. Okay. At a restaurant, at a normal, typical 
restaurant where you sit down, a waiter comes, brings you a menu, they're always going to ask when you pay with a credit card, mm -hmm. cuenta cerrada. Yeah. Or basically, they're asking you the equivalent of, would you like to close out your bill? And that's not literally asking that question. What he's asking is, how much of a tip would you like to leave? Because they have to enter it into the terminal ahead of time. It's yeah. not like the United States or other countries where you write in the tip amount on the receipt outside of the view of the waiter. And typically the guidelines are, are the same. I think a Mexican will tell you 10, 15 percent. Yeah. I do the standard 15, 20. Okay. I don't go to restaurants that often, actually. I don't know if I go to restaurants aside from when I'm with you or maybe with <laughs> Rodrigo. Um, after that, it gets a lot more complicated. At a puesto, for example, if you're going to a, a puesto, which is basically a street stand, if it's a very popular street stand where there's lots of foreigners, you hear a lot of English, 10, 15% will usually apply. But you have to be very careful about it because if you go to the wrong puesto or another puesto, a very Mexican one, that can be seen as insulting to okay. add more money than what you pay, or oh. it makes you look like an idiot for not understanding how much they were actually charging in the first place. The rule there typically is if your order of tacos comes out to say 45 pesos, just give them a 50 and see like, no, yeah. está bien. Yeah. Um, you, round, you round it up to the next nearest whole figure, like you would, I suppose, at a restaurant in Germany. Many people do, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then there's other circumstances that vary a lot depending on context, who you are, who they are, where you are. A normal taxi, the, the same rule generally applies. You, you round it up. But if they're helping you with a lot of voluminous luggage, of course, you would tip more. Airport taxis, that rule always applies, whether or not they're helping you with your luggage. Um, in fancier hotels, you, you always tip, but it's it never out in the open. Huh. That it's always, it's always, you have to be as subtle about it as possible. Whereas in the U.S., you can be just as blatant about it as you want. You have to try to be a little bit more subtle about it and use the tip as an excuse for a parting greeting, mm -hmm. for example. And then, basically, if I had to pick for a general rule outside of the restaurant rule, just ask, what's the custom here? And the, you will always get an honest answer. You, you may at first get a, a subtle, oh, it's not necessary, thank you for it, like a polite refusal, yeah. but it, with a polite insistence, you'll get the actual rule for the particular situation, along with possibly an explanation. It might be an opening for a conversation which if you're the kind of adventurous tourists that I think we are, uh, is, is it, it will provide a lot of delightful insight as, as, as an extra sort of spice to your trip to Mexico. So, but that, that was, I think, our first really good, honest, not having anything to do with the, the technology world <laughs> suggestion of the thing, not technology or food, I should say. And, and so that was great. Please, please keep them coming. Do, do you have anything to add to my well, somewhat long rant? It was very interesting to me because I never did any research and we just tried it out and see, saw how it, how it went. 
So I have um, some experiences um, that generally, so if we go to eat anywhere, uh, no matter uh, how large the place is, 10 to 15 percent, usually more in the 10 percent range, because we're Germans and it's Germany, 10 percent is good, and so uh, we do that. Uh, at some places where we like the people a lot, they get more. At the Puesto or at a taqueria where you don't even sit down, I've never had the feeling that not tipping is a problem. But I usually tip. Um, they have often have a jar. Um, in taxis, from what we gathered, from also speaking to taxi drivers, it's not at all common to tip. We usually round up, like you explained, but it's not common. Now, the, the extension of taxis is Uber. And uh, for a while, we tried to tip our Uber driver. Like when we had a, lo a long ride for, I don't know, 100 pesos, 150 pesos, I tried to give him another 20. They, some are very excited, but they're surprised. First of all, they're surprised. Second of all, they are uh, excited or they refuse to take it. Which led me now to not tip my Uber drivers anymore because I don't, I want to avoid that feeling of, you know, I want to give you something good because you did a good job and, but you don't want it. I don't, you, you maybe, maybe you can explain. And, why and that here, is. no, here's a case example but that is, of where a tip can possibly seen, be seen as an insult. Yeah. Uber in Mexico City especially. Uber drivers a lot of times will consider themselves as the highest class of chauffeur service oh, there is okay. available. They buy the company line of your private driver. And for them, every Uber ride, it's as if they are your chauffeur. Uh -huh. They don't talk. They're, they are, which I love, but yeah, they're the that, as opposed to taxis. Taxi drivers will always try to get you <laughs> in some kind of a conversation, and they'll try even harder if you don't speak Spanish. <laughs> yeah, that Uber drivers oftentimes, especially the older ones, they have a new car. They're wearing a, a suit. They're wearing a suit. They've made a big investment in this now. This is also to say that sometimes it's more more. Often I'd say at night, especially on Sundays, you'll have a younger guy driving the older guy's car. And they're kind of, they might be more like a taxi driver, they might be more like an Uber driver. But you have to really, classism pervades everything <laughs> in Mexico, and it's very complicated. Yes. And it's not a matter of what class are you, it's what class are you right now? in the context and and so that's why I mean I think tipping I, I don't know what the tipping culture is with Ubers in the rest of the world I don't take Ubers the only actually the only time I really ever take Ubers are here in the city and it's mostly out of security yeah mostly out of security and convenience because there have been a lot of times where, I mean I've had some very sketchy unpleasant rides I, I've, perhaps because of my experiences when I first got here, I'll, I just avoid taxis straight away, which is not, I mean, I, in, 
I, I can't make a blanket recommendation against taxis in Mexico City, but personally for me, it's it's a non-starter. If you are going to use taxis, always go, don't hail one in the street. Never. Never, ever just hail one in the street. Always try to go to a, uh, a street corner where they have them. Otherwise, as much as I hate, hate, hate. Yes. To recommend Uber, I all of the other services that you might use do they have they, they exist in Mexico City but the service is not nearly as comprehensive as it would be in other places if I'm in San Francisco or if I'm in New York and it's a half hour wa- walk versus a 10 minute Uber ride or a 10 minute I'll walk yeah. uh, but here in Mexico City even though the distance is the same sometimes I'm just not just not feeling it I, I don't know why perhaps it's just the laziness of being in my hometown if, if that's a thing but I'm digressing from the main point of tipping. Yeah, but I, I had the topic of Uber on my list of possible topics for for any uh, for the future, and just because we'll keep it short. Um, the aspect of security alone is enough for me to forget and ignore everything else about Uber, especially concerning Catherine. When Catherine comes out home at night, she's never gonna walk. I I not, don't even walk anymore a lot. Yeah, I sometimes do, but but uh, having that car that I, I okay no. Let me let us get into Uber another time uh, because I have a list of things I want to say about that. Uh, why we use a lot of Ubers here here. Okay. Next up was... And, uh, and tipping, no. Oh, just oh, oh. one more aspect about uh, tipping. We don't... We almost never pay by credit card in restaurants. So we pay in cash. And we have often tried to do it like in Germany that we... we So when the bill is 180 pesos and we want to give 210 and then we put down 250 because that's what we have and then say, give us 40 back. Generally, that doesn't work because they get confused with the numbers. And so what we now do, what works every time, we just put enough money into the check, we get our change, and then we put, and then if they're smart enough, they give the change in a way that we can put out a decent tip, and then we put the change back into the, uh, to the um, envelope. Um, We've tried many times to do it differently, but that's how it works, and that's uh, how it always works. Uh, one one note for our German listeners. Waiters here, and in the rest of the world, I actually don't know how commonly oh. known this is, will not split the check up individually. This is a lovely custom that I love about Germany, and that you can mm-hmm. talk with the waiter yeah. directly and pay for just your portion of the meal, which is something that I don't think happens anywhere else in the world. On the Masunta Beach, there's one bar. It's run by my friend um, Gustavo, and he has a sign for that. I, I never, I don't understand. I would never understood until now why that sign is there. But um, it, it's a sign saying we will not split up the check. No separate checks. No separate checks. You find that sign actually very commonly in New York because of all the German tourists. No, I think it's a it's a service that people want. 
I, I think there's a universal demand for it. There's just not a universal recognition of it. I don't think it's just for German tourists. Perhaps maybe German tourists are responsible for giving people the idea that this was possible. And, and some, I think when you're coding a POS for a restaurant, this is a very common feature request. And I've never seen it implemented well. I, I, perhaps it's just not a solvable problem. But. <laughs> so that's that about tipping. Mm -hmm. Should we have ordered a larger basket then have let's have yeah. two half basket mm -hmm. but we, we we came here for the bread specifically yes and i don't know if you really totally finished the topic have of I, the have german I, love for bread the german love for bread i read some i read a re retweet i forget who retweeted I and mean, probably a lot of people retweeted if i saw it but the germans have many different words for bread not just the kind of bread, but the condition of the bread. And I think now I have to, that puzzled look on your face, now I have to find the tweet. There's definitely lots of different words for the same thing, for the same type of bread or roll in different parts of Germany. Mm -hmm. Just like there's areas in the US that uh, call soda something else. Mm -hmm. So that would be Brötchen, Semmeln, uh, Becken, of course, and probably a lot more that I don't know about. Now, about the condition. Okay, so uh, Moami uh, lists the different words Brot, Brötchen, and Toast. And I don't, I, I don't understand the, the <laughs> what's so, um, what's so hard about that? Of course, it's three different things. Well, but you what, have what, that what, in English are, too. Okay. You have, you have your roll. You have your bread, which is a large loaf of bread. Mm -hmm. Then you have your toast. Do you call it bread? Just a regular white toast. Put it in the toaster. Is that just bread? Well, no, it's it's toast, but yeah. So I mean, there, there's there's bread and toast, but toast board. Yeah, I, I. But the thing is, I think bread has fallen. Bread itself has fallen out of favor. In the last four years, maybe. In, and I... something like that. Yeah. The the, uh, <laughs> the the war against carbs. <laughs> huh. If you're going to turn this into a Fox News conspiracy. I don't believe that the war against carbs will ever be successful in Germany. And I have no I have no stake in this. I firmly believe out of experience that we are so used to bread, potatoes, pasta and um, spätzle, pizza that we can Germans can't live without. Well, let, carbs. let me let me take a different Approach. I don't think the war against anything will succeed in Germany. <laughs> as, as soon as you've described it, described your thing, in terms of war, you have already lost. Any any diet, any any or way of living that excludes carbs, is very very strange to me. It's just, we can just I don't no no words for that. 
Is that enough about bread? It was I don't enough know. about. I, I, but now I have to. Now I have to get into the betrebs rot. Yeah. Okay. The in terms of I, I was just thinking about war and how everything in the U.S. has become very warlike. People are not, even in their quote-unquote conversations, are not conversing, are not in a mutual quest to find a shared truth as much as they are in a war with the very defined camps and very defined um, positions that they stake out and then throw at the other person. And one of these has to do with labor relations and there's a very, I've been thinking a lot about just in, in light of everything from the Congress and what other people have been saying based on my comments from the last podcast about what I'm trying to understand the German psyche and the German approach to a lot of things, which is very subtle. <laughs> and I'm glad I, I have you here to, to bounce these ideas off, but the Betriebs Rat, the Workers' Council. Yeah. Whereas in the U.S. you'll find very strident calls to unionize. Mm -hmm. Let's rise up and have this camp of the workers against the against management. And then you have equally strident anti-union, unions are communism, unions are bad for business, blah, 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 blah. And then, as, as I often end up in conversations with my dad saying, it works in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> There's the, the example of the Betriebs rod, which perhaps you could explain a little for. I can't really. I have never worked anywhere where there was a Betriebs rod. Ah, that's probably not true, but I had, didn't have any contact with it. I, I, I had one stint in, a, in a, an IT consultant, an SAP consulting company. The joke was, don't mention the word Betriebs rod because you'll get fired. And it's not a joke because that's how it works in all the uh, companies where you don't have a Betriebsrat yet. And that was a company of 120, 130 uh, employees. So, But what's the idea? <laughs> you should have told me this before. I'm sorry. So I could have researched. Uh, my understanding is that it's a government regulation that gives workers or employees more power when talking to the to management to the bosses you as as an only employee you have no power they can you know you're not important if you just won but if you unionize or if you get you know get a group together and have everybody talk to management it turns out they need you more than they admit to and so but now I understand it. Betriebsrat has actual actual voting power in German companies, but that is about the extent of my knowledge. Um, let me research that, or you do, or our listeners can uh, can enlighten us. That would be great. I, I I threw this question out on Twitter, half as a half being serious, half as a joke, and I'm I'm loving the responses to it. <laughs> so far but I and I because I know I know what it is I actually okay. studied it in, during my MBA and I've okay I didn't so yeah, yeah. no I mean it, 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 it is yeah. it, you you gave a very good very good explanation of okay. it that in of course there's always the way it was designed to work and the way that it works in in principle 
um, or I mean the way that works, the way it's supposed to work in principle and the way it works in practice. Yeah. And I like this approach because I have a very, I have a very, a very holistic approach to, to doing business. Perhaps I was taught in a very weird, it's almost a, my MBA is a, geez, I got my MBA a long time ago, let me put it this way. <laughs> In an era where people were losing a lot, where people had every right to lose a lot of faith, and in the wake of the Enron crisis, which if you if you remember that was a huge, flagrant violation of the public trust by a corporation that was seeking huge profits, which now I think is just the norm. Seems like it. But get getting to the getting to the point, it's a workers' council where basically you have this. You have a group of people who are elected by the people who work for you to tell you certain things that you as management may not see right away. That I've, I've had the good fortune of working in places where there wasn't this inherent suspicion of employees by management. You didn't have this micromanaging of people. You didn't have discussions of um, time theft, things <laughs> like that. That you really, in any... To, to maximize efficiency, you have to work like as a team. And everybody has the roles. You have the leaders, you have the workers, you have people who have to do the things, some of some tasks of which are very demanding from a leadership perspective, other tasks which are very demanding from a rote labor perspective. But even somebody who does the most rote repetitive task. I need my carbs. <laughs> no, I broke your flow. I, no, no, I thought that was... That, okay, I, that was I think okay. I was coming to an end. Good. Basically, everybody has to work... To, oh, I'm sorry. The what I, I wasn't finished. That even the person who has the most rote job, who does it, the most repetitive task on any assembly line, will probably have a good idea on how to do it better. Now, if you're a manager, do you recognize that? Do you recognize the valued contribution of a person who might be the lowest, least educated person on your team? Do you value their input? You should, but do you? The, I, perhaps this is my boundless optimism, but I like to think that most people at least try. You might not have the right language to do so, but you'll try. And that's basically the idea of embodied in a workers councils that there's a place for you for the workers to speak with one voice to management about things that management may not be aware of and as far as i'm concerned it's a it's a uh, non-antagonistic way of doing about it but given some of the replies that i've been seeing on <laughs> twitter it's it, my my perception may not jive with the actual reality on the ground and especially given what you were saying about it But now to happier topics. Drinking Heineken as a teenager. 
Bobo replied and he mocked me for drinking Heineken. And he rightly mocked me for drinking Heineken with lime juice. But you were mocking I, yourself. That was I, the I point. Was, yeah, that was point. So, and he, yeah. It's a, is there anything else to say about that? No, yeah, I'm mocking myself. I, I don't want to drink Heineken. And now, did you, do you remember last time? So episode six, <laughs> we went to the taco place and they had Bohemia Pilsner. And I must say, so the other day I went to another taco place uh, near my uh, home, which is not as good, but it's there and it's the closest taco place and it's not that good. And they also had that. He didn't know about it. I asked for a Bohemia Clara or the other one there and they had the Obscura and uh, then the Bohemia Pilsner. Well, I think the point that every, why do you drink beer here? It's just... Why? Perdón, chef. Yeah. Este, tengo jugo de naranja o toronja. Naranja, por favor, sí. Y otra canasta. Sí. Canasta. Entonces, sí, hubiera estado bien la canasta. Sí, no, no, exacto. Perdón, chef. Pero teníamos jugo, pero tenemos mucho hombre para pan. Sí. Ok, chef. No, de qué. Me retiro esta vez. Y ahora te les traigo unos platos limpios. I think that's what we're that's what we're asking when there's so much other that was the point that I made in my toot back to, to Bobo. And while while you're chewing I'll I'll make a, a quick apology that I was unable to download your voice greeting on my way over here, sadly. But thank you so much. We will listen to it and bring it bring it up in the next one, provided the NSA hasn't <laughs> fingerprinted his voice by then. That that was the joke on that. <laughs> I'm drinking a lot less beer here than I would in Germany. And yeah, every time we meet, I have a beer. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's, I'm accustomed to it, maybe. I like drinking alcohol. I like the feeling. And now the problem now, but with Mexican beer and the feeling you want to get from alcohol is you don't. <laughs> Beer might as well be considered non-alcoholic in Mexico, like by comparison. Yeah, yeah, and I've tried it a lot. Um, have you been to the Brooklyn Brewery? I, I don't think so. I've been to a lot of places that serve Brooklyn Brewery beers. Yeah. We carried Brooklyn Brewery at the at the Bushwick Food Co-op. Mm. I think they still do. Um, uh, on the on one of the outside walls of the Brooklyn Brewery, there's a quote. I don't know by whom. Um, it says, "Beer makes you feel the way you should feel without it." Which you can dispute that. And, yeah. So I don't know. I think anybody that's saying. pursuing brewing as a passion has to have a, a little bit of the German brewer psyche within them. If you're gonna, if you're going to put your name out there as a brewery, I, I have something similar. One of the biggest complaints I had coming to Mexico was steak, mm -hmm. big cuts of meat. Not, I mean, you you can order them; they are available on many menus in Mexico City, but it's not the same as having beef in the United States. <laughs> that, no, it's not. That bad, not maybe not bad, but passable cuts of meat are better than the highest 
quality, big cuts of thick meat you will find in Mexico City because it's not a thing. Yeah. Steer is raised differently in Mexico. It's it's much, 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 much leaner. And I'm, I'm offending every, every vegan that I love and know by bringing this conversation up. <laughs> and I apologize for that. Um, most, that's the funny thing is most of the American friends that I'm closest to are vegans. And I, I feel guilty just talking about animal products. But in Mexico, which has very, very good vegan taquerias, by the yeah. way. Big, maybe not taquerias, but very good vegan um, taco stands. Is that it's not a thing here. And that I came to learn that this is not a thing here. And that it's not worth pursuing my big French style cooked de beef in Mexico that I had to just give it up because I was chasing something I was I was chasing something that is not available that is always going to be a disappointment and instead I had to learn to embrace the things that were unique to Mexico City and enjoy those mm-hmm. and and learn to live within Not the limitations, but within the cornucopia of things that are available here and only here, and not elsewhere. And of course, now I'm I've completely flipped and become one of those gringos that is always complaining about uh, <laughs> not not having my tacos al pastor, or or complaining about the travesty of putting sour cream on tacos al. But like that, actually, that the funny thing is, the only time I used to work in a restaurant, so I when I was very very young. So I, I never, I will almost never send anything back. And I used to say I never send anything back. One time in the U.S., somebody served tacos al pastor with sour cream. Why? And that was the only time that I have ever sent anything back. And I was indignant in a way that I am now somewhat ashamed of. <laughs> But you you don't, you, you, I know that you put tons and tons of sour, that's another thing, sour cream on Mexican food in the U.S., not a thing in Mexico. No. That I don't, I I, th- I, I don't actually, I can't name a conventional Mexican dish that has no, any mean, kind of white sauce. Yeah. On. You get crema, which is not exactly sour cream, but on a lot of, like, enchiladas verdes, even uh, chilaquiles get, oftentimes get crema on that. It's, or maybe it's just the bad restaurant. It's more like a mayonnaise than it is a yeah, crema. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's but, very common and people like it. It's just another way of adding fat to the yeah, dish. Yeah. But it's not not these huge dollops of sour no, cream no. that you you know that that's not a that's not a thing here. And that's the thing. There's there's savory crema and there's sweet crema too. There there's depending on the dish. Is there anything to add to? I, I do have to give one shout out to um, Tabasco. I saying just like other explanations to Americans, you don't. About the betriebsrat. Yeah. <sighs> Um, but we, we should get back to Cheetah's comment. Okay. And, and I think this, this Sebastian echoed this 
and a couple of other people on the Fediverse echoed about sort of my comment at why a code of conduct would not work at the Congress. And I, I have to preface all this by saying I don't pass myself off as an expert in any of this. These are just my, my thoughts, my hunches, my opinions from a what I hope to be a very middle-of-the-road kind of view is that I can be convinced either way. And I like to hear the arguments for both sides. And I think um, until you have that open and honest dialogue, and a dialogue is defined as a, a mutual quest for a shared truth from two divergent perspectives, yes, that's how I define it. I don't know if that's the official Webster's definition. Um, I, I think my take on it is somewhat middle of the road. What was, did, did you have any, I mean, is there any way you could sort of expound upon some of the comments we received in that respect from last I didn't, time? no, didn't receive a lot of comments. Just Cheater, Cheater, he said, and he put it into German, um, that, so to him, it was a new thought that maybe a code of conduct usually is a very good idea, but it won't work at the Congress because it is so special. Now, is that a... That is his interpretation of your yeah, argument. Which so. it was. Now, And he just put it out there as a thought. Um, yeah, for the discussion. And that's, that's all we can do here, to give out ideas and hopefully listen to, to comments to those ideas. So this is just... Yeah. And of course, shouts out to Tobias who... And those good old days at the BCC, which now, if you remember, makes you officially old. I'm old. We're both old. Yeah. Well, not old, old, but we don't remember when the Congress was back at Hamburg, like way back in the no. day in the single digit. <laughs> we are eating Belgian bread and probably... At, at International least, butter. Oh, this this actually is very good butter. I bake exclusively with this butter. Good to know. President butter. It's 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 really hard to find. Like I said, with dairy products, again as a failing my vegan friends and uh, all my baking exploits, this is a butter that I pretty much swear by. I've had horrible. Well, not horrible because the things that I bake have tons of butter and they have tons of sugar in them. And if the butter's bad. The sugar will usually cancel it out in the minds of most people. But when it's really good, when you have really good butter and really good sugar, it, it will forgive any of my errors in baking. But you don't get that in the normal supermarkets. Do you get that at Superama? Because I have to check. I mean, I go to, Sume have... I go to Sumesa. But... Okay, yeah, we have our Sumesa. They have that there? You, okay. you go to the Walmart. No. Yeah, Superamas are Walmarts. Yeah. No, they, sometimes they, they have no, that for, for our specialty, for specialty foods like right. cheese and salami, um, and some other stuff. We go to Superama, and most of the time we go to Sumesa. Okay, I'll check for that butter. I do want to give before we close out the code of conduct topic. I think that Bobo raised a very good point that I refuse to raise. It's just that. I mean, which I sort of raised tangentially by saying that it is a huge thing now and we have to think of it in terms of cities. And I'm just going to quote him. I think he says, I think you need one because if you are new to the scene, it gets much easier to adapt the common sense if you can read up on what this group has agreed upon. Mm -hmm. And I totally agree with that. I think that 
at, in some in some versions of the conversation I said we should just put it on this is a very nerdy way of doing it possibly exclusive but just put it on github have people submit pull requests make it a community edited effort as again part of a dialogue to try to find well what is the common sense what is the common code sense you know oh my god she's so cool like i am super attracted to her what do i do that's an open question i don't you know the funny thing is i don't even know how to answer that and a lot of a lot of things that, that and of course there's always going to be the people who are out to harass and out to intimidate and I mean that that's a very clear clear cut thing but what do you do when when you're when you feel an attraction to somebody and I'm not I'm not saying just purely sexual attraction it could be this person is super cool and I want to get to know them better how do I approach them in a way that's not harassing them that's respectful of their time and respectful of my time and I, I would totally love to see that effort come out. I, these things are maybe common sense to a lot of people. So if it is, why not just write it down? Let's not make it law. Let's make it a style guide. Now to close another bracket, if you ever go to Cancun, I don't know why you would, but... There is a French restaurant there where they have amazing steak. Not like here. It's a French restaurant. I'll, I'll check our our um, travel guide. It's in there. It's not cheap, um, but um, you can get it. But then again, you can go to New York and then you have your steak there. You go to M. It's Wells. probably hmm? just just go to M. Wells every time I go to New York. I've gone to New York. I've I've changed. I've programmed myself eight-hour layovers specifically so I can go to M. Wells in Queens. Mm -hmm. Not in it, yeah, so. Okay, you have to put a link in the show notes so I know where it is. Who knows, maybe I can I can do that too. I, I updated episode. Yeah, you yeah, did, did, you did. did. It's going to be published tomorrow. I even put in Rory and Yvonne, the three people who are our three Oh, as contributors. Forced guest stars. So now on to the main the main topic. Is it a continuation of... Oh, no, no. We talked about Mexico City specifically. So today we're going to talk about Mexico. And why it is a rich country. Not just a rich country, but a rich country in every sense that you can't immediately see. And I've been, this is a very weird point to take, especially as a gringo in my Spanish classes. <laughs> now, of course, I, I'm, the, I'm the weird gringo in my Spanish classes in, in the sense that I often have a better sense of real Mexican history than a lot of Mexicans do. And there's some Mexicans who take classes in the same faculty that I do. Uh, the Centro para Enseñanza, uh, Centro de Enseñanza para Extranjeros, CEPE, which is primarily a language school. It's primarily there to teach foreigners how to speak Spanish. And in the last class, Spanish 8, Alonzalo, that I'm in, that I'm taking for the second time, uh, there's 
there's myself, there's an Italian, a very young Italian, he's 18 years old, he wants to go to college in Mexico, a Japanese lady who's very, very reserved, young lady, very reserved, a Chinese gentleman who's also somewhat young and is... Very, he, he talks a lot, but I don't think his Spanish is quite at the at an advanced sp spoken level. Um, obviously, he passed the exams to get into Avanzalo, or he wouldn't be there. Um, and and an American who has a fairly typical <laughs> liberal, um, but but somewhat not somewhat classically American lack of nuance. <laughs> Oh, so that's the biggest <laughs> laugh I've gotten out of you in a long time. Um, and so when I when I bring things up, I bring things up from a very odd perspective. Um, and I, I think it's it, when you're a foreigner in another country, you're going to see things differently. You're 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 going to miss a lot of the subtext that comes with being a native. But at the same time, you're not prejudiced by the same sorts of things, uh, uh, by the same yep. sorts yep. of myth-making in your upbringing, which, have, which is antithetical to Germans because the, there was no real myth-making <laughs> in Germany. Perhaps that lack of, and I'm, I'm gonna wait for this yeah. for the truck to go by. Which is a nod to what I was saying in the last episode, that they recycle very efficiently yeah. in Mexico City. And, and I think this is, it's not so, it's perhaps not common, or perhaps not exclusive to Mexico as much as it is to countries that, uh, where materials are more expensive than labor. On my list of so, possible future drafts, I have one that I'd very, like, very much like to do, and that's Sounds of the City. I, sounds of Mexico City. I, I call um, Tamales Oaxaqueños as my first draft pick. I'm calling that one. Okay. You, you, you can have the metal recyclers. <laughs> yes. I want the Oaxaqueño Tamales guy. <laughs> which, which for those, those are the two most stereotypical they are. sounds of Mexico yeah. City. Two, rec two very classic recordings that you will hear at least 11 billion times a week. <laughs> but my point is, Mexico is a rich country in every sense that we can't see clearly and openly. And what I'm saying by this is that it, a lot of it has to do with impressions. Mexicans don't think of themselves as coming from a rich country in the same way that Americans think of themselves mm -hmm. as coming from a rich country. Mm -hmm. Which is again different from the way I believe Germans, most Germans view themselves as not so much coming from a rich country, but a prudent, developed country. And, and that, and I think that has everything to do with reflecting the origins and the history. 
that so much of the history of each of the three countries is embedded in each of those statements. And that I think my theory on Mexico's current state of being has a lot to do with the fact that Mexico as the, the, the organizing principle behind Mexico for most of its history, going back 500, 500 years, almost 500 years, is the concept of the virreinato, that you had a conquering class that came in, that conquered another developed culture. And the whole reason for the organizing principle, the government, the church, everybody, was to convert the people that were already here over to the Spanish Catholic way of being and way of thinking and extract as much wealth from the country as possible to send back to the King of Spain. That's the, that was the organizing principle of Mexico. And of course, you, you have revolutions, you have a lot of, you, you have ways of shaking this off. And I think a lot of, a lot of the problems with perhaps Eastern European or ex-Soviet bloc countries is the same thing, that the people who are in charge of running things only have the experience of doing things one way. The organizing principle of the US is, hey, we've got a big, huge, abundant country. Let's go, let's go out there and get our shared wealth. That that's, I mean, if it, there's, there's a lot of myth-making in that. There's, there's always the temporarily embarrassed millionaires comment. And, and a lot of that is myth-making and perception, but the, the organizing principle of America is we are a rich country. We have to all go out there and create value together, that all of us are, have a potential million-dollar idea in us, we just have to find it. Mm -hmm. Very gringo perspective, as I was reminded. Um, and as part of my program, as a part of my background, as a part of my way of being. And I can feel that, and I can see that living in another country. And this is where you correct me. The German perspective is... Maybe not your grandparents, perhaps your grandparents. were, and, and I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to find nice ways of saying this, but whereas perhaps my great-grandparents, I mean, not my great-grandparents, my great-grandparents were in Chile, <laughs> but <laughs> if I were an American and I had great-grandparents <laughs> during the Depression, you know, that you had, you had people who were, um, you know, who were thrown into one of the worst economic crises, the worst economic crisis of the industrialized era, and lived through it, and won a war. Right? That's 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 the sort of grandparent, great grandparent, great great grandparent, depending on how old you are. Era. Whereas the same generation on the German side, same economic crisis, lost a war. Were divided. Where you had the the two emergent great world powers split the country apart. You know, you, you look at some of the some of the earliest films from the DIFA and you just see Berlin leveled. And and there there's a lot more history that I can't 
jump into, but this is why to this day, these are the reasons why to this day, lights aren't always on in building, in apartment buildings. You press the, you press the button in the apartment building, the lights are on just long enough for you to get to the door and then they turn off again. That comes from the war. Is that not normal? No, that that I've never seen that outside of Germany. Even in my even in my apartment building here in Mexico City, we have a timer. The lights stay on from six o'clock at night to seven o'clock the next morning. I mean, what about Europe? The, the apartment building you live in, in the same way, the lights in the common areas are always on. No. No. <laughs> no. no, the the lights in the um, staircase is not always on. <laughs> No, you're confused. <laughs> that is not, that's not, well, granted, there's a lot of other ways to, I mean, we, we briefly touched on, on common architecture, but is there a button the same way there is in German buildings, in your building? No, it's it's a motion uh, sensor. Oh, okay. It turns on. This is a but that's very, a very But German. motion sensors are a relatively new thing. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very no, German. No, and the building is very, very modern and new, mm -hmm. and actually well-built. There's a lot of new apartment buildings in the city and many of them are poorly built and all the appliances are, are uh, all, everything that's in there is very poor quality and cheap but yes. it makes business sense because people are paying a lot of rent right now for for apartments and if they look new then they pay more I'm learning as, as about a, Germans. Yeah. That's that's very nice. As a brief yes. nod to, uh, but but that's the thing is that coming from the way buildings are built, the drive to save energy, and and given the fact that a lot of Germany's gas comes from Russia, and Russia has a huge political lever in there, you have huge investments in wind that you don't see in the rest of the developed world because U.S. has has tons of natural gas mm -hmm. inside yeah, the US. Yeah, sure. They frack from, you know, we'll, we'll frack for more. We'll go dig, we'll dig through our, the natural beauty of Alaska to get more petroleum. And if that's not enough, we'll take it from Mexico and we'll take it from Canada. I, I think I grew up, I mean, turning off the light is saving energy. That's how I grew up. So and, maybe that is... Uh, and we had a brief, we had a brief brief period of that in the 70s uh -huh. in the US. That's when the gas got uh, so expensive? The, 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 yeah, oil the, crisis. the oil crisis, yeah. But it wasn't, but everybody longed for their big, huge trucks and we went right back to it. No. You, you had a thought? No. My thought was you just mentioned the the big trucks, the big vehicles that the Americans love, and you you see that here. Now you see large vehicles, but the majority of all cars is not as large, and they are very new. And I unfortunately can't point to the legislation that made it that way, but it's it's not viable to own a old car that produces lots of pollution in Mexico City. Other parts of the country, you see everything. And even in the outskirts of Mexico City, where you have people who kind of get away with 
without doing the vehicle inspection that's very common inside Mexico City. That if you have a car licensed for the city, you, there is, you have a lot of different inspections that are involved. And even to keep a car domiciled in the city, if it's from somewhere else, you have to have the proper stickers and you have to have the proper permissions for it. That are only vehicles that go back and forth between Estado de Mexico yeah. and the city, which are really the biggest polluters because they're traveling the <laughs> most, regardless of how clean or dirty they are inherently. Um, no, Easter week, uh, Semana Santa, when the city is empty, the pollution clears up. It's amazing. It takes two or three days. It's fine. Um, maybe one fact we should mention is that Mexico City. So when we, I guess, when we talk about Mexico City, it we really mean the metropolitan area of Mexico City. Now we've mentioned so there's this. Now it, it was called Distrito Federal. Now it's called Ciudad de México, which is now a real state, and that is it's some, a state a. An entity that is, for all intents and purposes, considered as a government to have the same, have essentially the same principles embedded within it as a state-level entity of the United States of Mexico. Mm -hmm. It's a, this is a <laughs> this in and of itself. And if we're talking about Mexican Mexican constitution, I thought American constitutional law was complicated. Wait until you talk with. <laughs> I mean, at least if, among constitutional scholars in the U.S., you can kind of divide them up into basically two camps with perhaps two more little fringe camps on either side. I have yet to come across Mexican jurists that not only have the same opinion, but have the same <laughs> general opinion in the same conversation. <laughs> The, the area that is really Ciudad de Mexico, officially, and it's a state, um, in this area live about, uh, there's about nine million people living there. This, uh, I think it covers most of the southern part of the Valley of Mexico, and certainly all of the parts where there was a lake 500 years ago. Um, but really, you don't see any, there's no <laughs> state border. There's not even a sign that says here uh, the the Estado de Mexico. There could, can be, yeah. But you, the city just keeps going. I don't. If you go north from here, do you see a sign? If you go on the Insurgentes Norte, you don't see a sign. Anymore. It's like Berlin and Brandenburg. Yeah. Only only case, the, the, the only the Brandenburg part is much bigger. Much bigger, yeah. In terms yeah. of area and people. Uh, and most of that, no, all of that is Estado de México. Estado de México, basically, it goes the, goes around the city. Right. And, uh, that before it was all Mexico, and then they cut out the federal district mm -hmm. from the state. And that's what today is Mexico yeah. City. But there is a big difference between El Omex and El DF. If you're in one of those two camps, <laughs> if you're not coming from one of those two camps. <laughs> I mean, aside from in Estado de Mexico, you have huge new palatial shopping malls. 
you, that that look like the stereotype of Los Angeles from the '90s and early aughts, the you know the mall rats. Yeah. But these were designed, I think, with those movies in mind. Only much uh -huh. nicer, much prettier, much. I've never seen shopping malls and as louder. nice. Much, much louder because much, all of these stores have their own music and their own speakers outside, and then people dancing and shouting. That's okay, that's, just me that's just Mexico. <laughs> yes. that, that's just Mexico. That's just Mexico. But no, these are these are little. These are not little. They're big town squares. They turned a metro station, a terminal, a, a, a transfer station between the metro. I don't even know if it's a transfer between metro and buses. I had to figure out how to get out of it because it was a shopping mall. <laughs> And most people were transferring from metro to bus to buses. I forget. I think I forget which station this was exactly, but it's, it was a beautiful new shopping mall with people in it and activity. You go to a shopping mall in the U.S. now. I, maybe I'm just in going to shopping malls in depressed areas of the U.S. But there, it, there are times when you could be in, say, uh, several thousand square meter space and see nobody which is you, you wouldn't find in, in shopping centers here and it's the, and that but this is what Estado Mexico is known for it's known for gigantic shopping centers copels combis and and it, it's not this it, the feel depending on where you're at on how much closer to Chimalhuacan or Toluca you are and of course there are various cities within that, that break the mold, that break the stereotype, that are, you, you might be in the FA if you didn't realize it, but there, there, is a, there is a distinction if you look no. into it a little bit. Gracias. But, but we're diverging from the, I, I forget how we even landed on this topic. Well, we have to mention what just happened. Um, if you're not careful, and there are rules about that too, but if you're not yeah, careful, you, you lose you lose your plate. So, <laughs> what that is okay. No, we know Ger German Mexicans, German Mexicans, because it's a German uh, school, and uh, we have one friend. She's actually, no, she's German. Her mother is Bolivian, um, but she moved here when she was like 25, and her children are Mexican, and she lives and works here. She knows both. She knows everything, and she, of course, is taking her sons to Germany. And now this will sound very strange to all the German listeners. The Mexicans find it very strange and gross, actually, that when you are at the restaurant and you finished eating and somebody else is still eating, you finished eating, your plate is empty, that the waiters do not take your plate away. Because in Germany, the custom is to wait until everybody has eaten, has finished eaten, to eat, and then take away the plates. Mexicans find that disgusting because they have their dirty plate in front of them and it's not being taken away. So on the other hand, for us, now of course, we now we know this, but it was very strange that whenever the plate was empty, it was taken away. There was a waiter coming, took the plate, and often they ask if they can take it but now I, I still have a tiny piece of bread on my on my plate, and I haven't eaten in five minutes. And, but that was the cue for for our waiter to to take my plate, and he did ask, but he didn't really ask to to ex uh, expect an answer. And now I had to tell him that no, please, um, 
let me keep my Hello. plate. This is this is a very controversial topic that I brought up, and I bring up very controversial daily topics somewhat frequently in my in my cohort. Do you shower every day? <laughs> now, if you're if we're being honest, if if we're being honest, and I I will. And granted, I'm having this conversation with men. I'm not having this conversation with. I'm not even broaching that subject. But among men, if among buddies, American men, German men, will not be terribly. I mean, among friends, will not be terribly ashamed to admit. Eh, some days I skip a day. Eh, maybe some days I'll skip two or three days. You know, like it's, it's. I'll, I won't take a shower religiously every day. They won't be afraid to admit that. It doesn't matter what class of Mexican you come from. I nod. I'm nodding. It, does, it doesn't matter which... Even if you... If, if the water is not on in your neighborhood... When the, when the water... My, the water in my building goes out. I mean, it, fortunately now we're making, I've been making a lot of changes. Thanks. I, I also have to throw this out to, <laughs> to Severin and the one thing a week, hashtag, hashtag one thing a week uh, that I've been doing, which is mostly water saving projects in the building mm -hmm. because our water will go out. Sometimes in this neighborhood, the water will go out. It went out for a day. Um, and people will go to their friends' houses or go to their friends' work, borrow their keys, go to their friends' house, be late for work so as not to miss their daily shower. I remember noticing one thing very early uh, after we came here. And uh, it's related to, to a new, new uh, phrase that uh, you taught me just the other week. Uh, it's the sauna gratis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, no. I didn't know what it meant. Uh, you should explain uh, it real quick. If well, we've talked about the, the metro, the, the mm -hmm. subway, and that when it's full, it's not really full because there's always space for more, and those people do get into the, the uh, car, and then it's really full. Have you seen someone go in through the window yet? No, not yet. That, that's, a, that's, on, just, that's on your like <laughs> Mexico City bingo card. Oh, I did that oh. once. I did that once. But what I noticed is that even though, I mean, it, it is hot in the summer and people do sweat, but in, you're in this, uh, in Germany you would say in a Sardinenschachtel, yeah? Sardinendose. Nobody smells. Nobody smells bad. You, you're not... What line were you on? Uh, <laughs> Café. I guess. Okay. Yeah, that I've, makes I've, sense. I've, I've yeah. taken that. A the lot. one by your house. The one by my house. Yeah. Of course, there's people that smell bad. But <gasps> in general, no, no, in general, you don't get uh, annoyed by people. Much that less smell than bad. in New York, and yeah. much less than in Germany. Much less than in Germany. I, I really, I didn't know about the the um, clean, uh, cleanliness, 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 personal Cle hygiene, personal hygiene of Mexicans, but. That's that I did notice Mexicans that. Mexicans take personal that, hygiene way, yes. way more seriously. And I researched that uh, once. It, it, this goes back to the to the Aztecs. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. No. No. Definitely. 
this is very old. And uh, there's actually, I just recently read a joke about how Europeans think that Mexicans or Latin Americans are do not have a good personal hygiene, but Mexicans think that everybody else uh, never showers, something like that. Uh, yeah. So, just to your point, yes, they take it very seriously and much more seriously than we do. I mean, I do take a shower pretty much every day, but that is not because of personal hygiene, but because I, I like it for going to bed after, after working out. But not in a way like here. I mean, if, the if water, there's no water, then if the water goes out in my building, yeah. I'm like, all right, whatever. It's it's not it's no 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 gracias no gracias. It's not a it's not a thing. Um, but no 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 gracias. No no gracias. No. I wonder if we should move the big topic to the next. Well, it, I think we're still, we're still in. Mexico is a rich country, and here's that's the thing. Mexico is a rich country in a sense that you can't immediately see. Yeah. The the example that I that I love to give. Um, well, there's two big examples. The one of which I think is much more poetically appropriate to my point, and that's Campo Chicontepec. A lot of people don't know that Mexico historically has been a huge oil producer that at one time it was the fifth largest producer of oil in the world and there's an oil field in Mexico that if they had the technical ability to extract oil from this field and, and eventually they will I mean a lot of it's technically less demanding than the oil sands of Canada to extract this oil, but it's uh, but it requires a much larger investment process, and and the technology is not as proven. I mean, the recovery of Texas of Canadian oil shale is is a huge, long, drawn out technological feat. That's really and which is one of the reasons for the huge drop in oil prices, because other other oil producers around the world are specifically trying to make that kind of very toxic, expensive oil production technically unfeasible. But if, long story short, if they had the ability to exploit it, Mexico would have the third largest, hmm. I mean, th third or fourth, depending on how you, ta how you look at proven reserves, would have the third or fourth largest proven oil reserves in the world behind Venezuela and the Gulf states. It's in the ground. It's there. You can't see it, and it's not being exploited. And I think poetically that's, that encapsulates how rich Mexico is. Mexico is an incredibly rich country in almost every sense. It's just the pieces and the will and the investment that's lacking. A lot of it is perception. Mex Americans unfairly perceive themselves to be rich. Mm -hmm. Mexicans unfairly perceive themselves to be poor. 
Germans correctly perceive themselves <laughs> as they are in comparison. I mean, I, 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 but, but, but that's the thing is that you were about to say, well, Germans don't exactly, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. Is that they're always will that the Germans are always willing to look for, for the truth of the matter. At least the Germans that I've met. And perhaps I've met a very special subset of Germans. But not too proud, but not ashamed. Yeah. Oil. Okay, oil. Um, so what I know about the Mexican oil production is that. They have almost no refineries, so they ship everything to the U.S. where it gets made into gas, uh, gasoline, and then shipped back, which is maybe not the smartest thing to do. And that, but especially that there's, I mean, it's it's a, a national um, company, the Pemex, that does everything. Now they started to open up the the um, oil production to international companies but I don't know what's what's happened in the last two years um, there's actually a very interesting podcast El Petróleo es Nuestro okay it's in English but that anybody who's I, I was turned on to this this podcast by uh, Jack Annie and some friends of mine and it is fascinating maybe it's just fascinating okay. to me because I'm very nerdy yeah. about these topics but it goes into the big long history of oil exploration and exploitation in Mexico and okay. we'll then answer I, a lot of these questions. I will stop speaking now and I will listen to that podcast. And is it a whole podcast or just one episode? No, it's a whole podcast. It's it's I think there's maybe 15 episodes. Yeah. It, there is, it, it has okay, a beginning good. and it has okay. an end. Very good. We'll put that in the show notes and I will listen to that. So I don't have to talk about it now without knowing anything. Um, yeah. Stop. <laughs> no, no, but that... Uh, but, there, there's that. There's also the other example I put was an example. I think a, a constant point of debate among people who are interested and knowledgeable in Mexico, Mexican history. And I have not been able to get a concrete answer or an answer that given the evidence is will, will satisfy me. Now, this is, it, it's, a question that I don't think can be answered. It's open to debate. And the problem with things that did not happen in history is you it's much harder to find evidence for why a thing did not happen and call it conclusive than it is why things did happen. And the thing that didn't happen is Mexico never even attempted in any way that I've been able to find to start a nuclear weapons program. Now, lots of countries never bothered to start a nuclear weapons program, but I can't find another country on Earth that had the capital at the national level to be able to afford the investment in starting a nuclear weapons program. <clears throat> the scientists and the academic capacity to do so. That, <clears throat> that when you look at, that if you take American uh, nuclear physicists, if you look at all of the, the nationalities of the people that worked 
on the Manhattan Project. Of course, the vast majority were Americans. You had your very well-known European emigres, physicists. And, if, and the next largest group of people were Mexican <laughs> nuclear scientists. But nobody ever talks about them because they just kind of blended into the background. But yes, there were, Mexico had a very large amount of nuclear scientists for a country of its disposition at that time. Mm -hmm. And the other thing Mexico has is uranium. You actually need uranium <laughs> to start, I mean, to, to start a, a nuclear weapons program during, you know, in the midst of the Cold War. You need, you need the actual fissile material. Mexico had all three of these things and was one of the world's largest economies. It wasn't destroyed like in, in the post-war. It was largely functional throughout, it was functional throughout the war and had a huge economic boom in the post-war era, like, um, like you know, very similar to the United States. <clears throat> Never even attempt, there's no evidence that they ever attempted to pursue a nuclear weapons program. Look at all of the other countries in the nuclear club. You have a lot of countries that proved that they could make a weapon. Mm -hmm. Countries that accident Israel accidentally admitted <laughs> that they had nukes, that they were part of the nuclear club. France, uh, the United the United Kingdom. No, none of these. All of these, a lot of countries, even Australia, they're like, oh, yeah, we proved we could do it, yeah, but no, we, we renounced it. The precedent to the anti-proliferation anti treaty was the Treaty of Cape Loco, which was initiated by Mexico in response to the Cuban Missile Crisis. The politicians here said, look, we need to make everything south of the U.S. a nuclear-free zone. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, Argentina, they started their own nuclear weapons program. Brazil started their own nuclear weapons program. You had a lot of these um, Latin American dictatorships were very interested in acquiring nuclear <laughs> weapons. And, of course, in Mexico, you have La Dictadura Perfecta, which could be a whole episode. La Dictadura Perfecta. Ah. God, I... Shifting from Spanish to English, my accent is always weirder than it was if I were just speaking Spanish the whole time. So I apologize for that. But, but the, the example of Mexico never pursuing a nuclear weapons program, when they totally could have, yeah. says so much about Mexico. And now we have to get into the, 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 other, the other natural wealth of Mexico, the corn, the avocados, the tomatoes. A lot of things that we eat every day came, you know, were first cultivated in large quantities here in the Valley of Mexico. And now... This is where you talk about the avocado cartels. The avocado cartels. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> Going from nuclear weapons to avocado cartels. Welcome to several ways to live. <laughs> I did some some research recently before we planned this uh, this episode about first of all to look into how big the market for avocados is, and then what the cartels, the narcos, do with it. And it turns out that all the uh, all the rumors were true. 
So avocado is is big. Uh, I read especially after after the NAFTA, the the free trade agreement with the U.S. Uh, the, that industry it's still booming and it's still getting bigger and bigger. And uh, I don't know, 60, I think I read 60% percent of all avocados that are eaten in the United States of America um, are imported from Mexico. And I haven't seen it, but in Michoacan, where most of the uh, avocado production of Mexico is, um, fields are getting bigger, forests are cut down, and it's not always a good thing. And I read some numbers, it's the whole market, the whole, the whole, uh, I read one number that uh, all Mexican avocado growers made a profit of 2.2 billion US dollars in 2016. I don't know if that's now if that's profit or just income, but it's in the billions. Uh, it's big. And when something big, when something's big and when uh, there's something where you can make a lot of money, then the the narcos, the cartels, um, they will go there and try to get their share. And Now this one, it was a Newsweek article, I hope that's almost correct. Um, it, that started in the 90s already when somehow they got got government records of all the avocado farmers and so they found out who is growing, how much where and how much money are they making and so they went in and said, okay, for each hectare, what's hectare? Um, 100 times 100 meters, is that the thing? And No, okay, acre? Whatever for each piece of your life. So I'm trying to finish this bread get, basket. I'm yeah, not, okay. I, <laughs> uh, so you pay us a uh, hundred pesos for this amount of land, and you pay us two pesos per pound of avocado that you sell. Uh, that started in the 90s. Uh, so the last number, the last estimate, uh, estimated number uh, that I read was that the whatever cartel is strong in Michoacan at the moment because that changes every couple of years um, they make about a hundred so they have income of about 150 million dollars of these I don't know two billion dollars um, just by by extorting uh, the farmers and also the transporters uh, of avocados and there was it was a question on on, on hacker news and Uh, did not really relate to the article, but the question basically was: Okay, now that uh, weed is in mar marijuana is, is uh, legal in the U.S., will that cripple the cartels? De decriminalized. Uh, decriminalized. Partially decriminalized. Okay. Partially. De okay. Will there, that there's, there's, harm the uh, cartels? Will that harm the, the narcos? And I didn't even I didn't read the discussion, but the obvious answer is no. Because these organizations are so big by now that uh, they grab whatever business they can get uh, with their methods, including the avocado business. So they they don't rely on on illegal drugs as much as you might want to think. Well, <clears throat> you, just to look at historical precedent, the growth of modern organized crime goes back to prohibition. And of course, prohibition in the United States was a failed experiment. But coming out of this failed experiment, 
you had very large criminal <coughs> enterprises that, though the faces changed, and it, it largely persevered right up and through possibly the the turn of this the turn of the 21st century and and of course they wa they waxed and waned within that period but only now can you really say they don't operate with the same kind of power at the same kind of level that they did you know in in their heyday and they dealt with everything they dealt with anything that was illegal that you could want they dealt with it um, you know, of course, alcohol was illegal. They built up huge organizations to get to feed this illicit need, and then persisted after the alcohol was legal in gambling, which eventually became legalized, and so that was not a as much of a source of income for them. Same thing with marijuana. You, you have harder drugs that they were involved in. Those, now those are different organizations that are not domestic with the U.S. for the most part now. But it's going to take a while. And, and I do think that we're approaching the decriminalization of, of, of all kinds of drugs. I think you don't have the same kind of advocacy for marijuana that you do for hard drugs. I think if you picked a, picked a group of 10 adults, how many of them have at least tried marijuana at some point in their lives? And I, I dare say that more than half of them have probably come into contact with marijuana at, the, at this point. Maybe one of them will have, maybe one or two will have tried cocaine or heroin, something like that. But, they, but it's not as much of a, there's not as much of a stigma attached to it. But even if all these drugs that the Mexican cartels make all of their money from were legalized tomorrow, yes, of course they'd find another way to make money, but eventually, eventually people will, farmers, growers, civilians, the people who are making honest livings, will eventually band together and fight these criminal enterprises that are taking their livelihood and providing no value in return. That is the optimistic view. Well, no, I think you, you, no, you see... No, that is the optimistic you, view. You see this... Now, granted, it takes generations for these things to happen. You, you saw this happen in Iraq, for example. You know, you, you had... You, Afghanistan is perhaps one example where this has never really happened, where this is not happening. It's just one big basket of... Uh, where people are, are... The warlord is the government. You have other parts of the world where the warlord is the government. But if you have people who know what a functioning government is supposed to look like, and know that these people are doing nothing, and stealing value from them that they are making, even that Newsweek article talked about local militias and things that people are, are, are beginning to fight back when the government will not. And you have... You have civic efforts in Mexico to fight against these kinds of corruptions. You see that whether you're talking about Nos Falta 43 or um, or if you're talking about the, the uproar against the fact that murders of journalists are not prosecuted here. 
and you could say that in Mexico, journalists who cover controversial topics are murdered with impunity. You, you have people who are saying these things in public. In other parts of the world... Where this, and they're getting murdered. No, I think... No, people who say, who say that this is a problem are not getting murdered. Oh, okay. The journalists, of course, are still getting yeah. murdered, and there's still journalists who are doing good work, but, but their, their deaths are not quietly, you know, sort of pushed under the rug like you have in some regimes. In some parts of the world, yes, journalists are murdered or disappeared, and it's a chilling sign, and nobody mourns their deaths. The way that they're mourned and brought up and, and constantly okay. inserted into the conversation the way they are in Mexico. Now, granted, here in the Valley of Mexico, we have the luxury to do this. That this is not... Mexico City is largely as safe as New York is. I don't have any st real statistics to back that up, and I wouldn't trust many of the, the crime collection statistics here. This is mostly just my feel. In the past few years, so I've read that, that Mexico City historically has been, as you mentioned last week, um, a city of refuge, especially also for journalists that maybe in another state, which is a matter of one who uh, who uh, reported on the ex-governor of Veracruz, and he fled to Mexico City because he feared for his life. A few weeks later, he and the women that were with him were murdered in cold blood in his apartment wherever he was here. Uh, so apparently something shifted there too that people even here are not safe anymore. Uh, not as safe as before. That also, I don't have any statistics about that. Um, the thing is, is that if you're talking about Duarte, we really need to do an episode about like the La Dictadura Perfecta mm -hmm. and, and that, that whole, that concept. Okay. which was very controversial in Mexico but there's a the power the real and people talk about the deep state in the United States or people talk about how how there's this cabal this Illuminati of people that control things from you know their their dark boardrooms or whatever but in Mexico a lot of that is largely the case mm -hmm. that there is a there is a ruling class of people that will continue to rule no matter what the elections say. Now, yes, you have, you have corporatism in the United States, but corporations rise and fall. It's not... The, the corporations that were powerful in the 1950s are not the ones that are powerful now. The party that was powerful in the 1930s <laughs> in Mexico is still the ruling party. We are getting away from our topics. I had to. I don't know. I'm 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 more skeptical than you are about, about what? About which part? About how how and if Mexico will ever realize or uh, make use of that richness. I mean, it, it's oil. It's agricultural. Um, it's. I wonder how big the tourism industry is here. It must be large because they have. The beaches are phenomenal. The the history is phenomenal. But um, it, it, so even, what, it what goes beyond that. People people are well educated and entrepreneurial. 
I, okay. I don't did, know did the, they go to the college? Right did they get a degree? If did they had they, rich parents, yes. Well, right, but I'm saying that it, if you look at, and yes, there is the, the vast majority of people in Mexico are poor, but even among people that are poor, and granted, we spend most of our time in the upper classes. Yeah. This is an upper class neighborhood. You, between the people who are professors at the school, and and I. Lalo, you know, my, my best friend here in Mexico, who I, don't, who I don't see that often, but the one that I'm really the closest to, um, having, you know, who, who runs the lavanderia. Mm -hmm. He's lower middle class. You know, I've, I've been to his house and his neighborhood. I've been to the church where his kids were baptized that doesn't have a roof. Like the, the main gathering, the main gathering point of this church has, has, a cor has one corrugated slope with no wall on one end of it. Mm -hmm. And that's their Catholic church. You know, I've been to a lot of places in Estado de Mexico that a lot of Mexicans in the upper classes have never mm -hmm. bothered to venture into. And I, I'm not going to say that I'm some you know, speaker of the masses or whatever, but I, I've spent a lot of time talking to people from all of the different, from what I believe to be a lot of the different classes, at least within the Valley of Mexico. And I, I've, it is not the same kind of, being poor in Mexico is much more dignified and people tend to be much, in spite of the lack of a formal education, much more educated, surprisingly educated in spite of the lack of having a rigorous formal education like, like we, and I, I dare say most people in the United States, most people in in Germany have been privileged to have. But but there is this kind of impression and this kind of hopelessness that I haven't even seen in very uh, among very poor people in the United States. That even poor people in the United States that have no reason to be hopeful have a certain kind of hope that is missing among even those who have made a success of themselves in Mexico. And these are all just my impressions. This is all just mm -hmm. my, I don't, it, it, this is symbolic interaction is at its finest. We're not researchers. I. We are not formal academic researchers. And I think there's a lot of nuance lost in formal academic mm -hmm. research. And you lose a lot of academic research is pixelated. You have to produce data. You have to produce numbers. There's, I think, qualitative research waxes and wanes. You know, the the, the interest in qualitative research and qualitative thinking and analysis waxes and wanes. But but quantitative always reigns supreme. And a lot of quantitative research in the social sciences is the invention of data. Sometimes it's good inventions of data that prove nice, and sometimes it's things that are incredibly misleading to people who live their lives within the topic. Not today, but in a future episode, I will bring up the topic of racism 
inter-Mex, I don't know how to call this, inter-Mexican racism, racism here between the classes, or classism, could call that. But I, oh, not today. I would love to hear this from, I would love to hear yeah. about that from a German perspective. Yeah. Oh, I will give you, I'll give, I'll give you stories. And then I, I won't give you an answer, and I, I've talked to, to Mexican friends about some of these questions that we have, and they gave some answers. So this is nothing you could quantify, and nobody, I don't know. We will talk about it. I'll tell some stories, and uh, what may be the reasons for these stories to happen in the future, not today, because then we we would record three hours. Four. Yeah, we, we we've gone a little bit long, I think, and you're not going to split this up into two. No. no okay. No. All right. But but it was good. I think we got to did. We finally disagreed on some some parts. What did we disagree on? Yeah, I'm not that hopeful for this country. Oh, okay. Well, that that's and that that we've had we've had that disagreement before. With it's been more subtle in the past. I think I I asked this in the second episode, and I asked it on Twitter again about you know what are prejudices prejudices uh, about Mexicans. Did you get about very Mexico. many responses? I did not get a single response. But I would, you know, I, I wanted to hear something like, everybody's corrupt, uh, the, the narcos uh, uh, control everything, and the uh, and politics and narcos are intervene, intertwined um, uh, beyond hope. And then I wanted to say that, yeah, that's true. Um, I want, but that's, yeah. I have to go look up and see what my prejudices about Mexico were, because yeah. I... Aside from one trip to Cancun with my parents when I was, I think, six or seven, I knew nothing about Mexico before I came here. I, I was incredibly ignorant <laughs> about Mexico. I, we, I, did, I was not so ignorant about Germany when I, when I went there, yeah. but I still, I still realized how ignorant I was. I, I have to go back and look and see what some of my prejudices were before I fell in love with a Mexican. And I, I have to go digging through some very traumatic. I, I remember one thing that. that go go for it. Before we came here, so we took a Spanish course, of just a few hours. We yeah. didn't learn much. But it was okay. And then when we talked, she was from Peru, I think, our teacher. And we would think about, okay, what do we have to buy before going there, that we really need stuff like soap, shampoo, like a second toothbrush. And she said, wow, it, 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 it's not here. They have supermarkets there. Everything's, no, it's like here. And we didn't, we didn't really believe her. We didn't know what to expect. We, we didn't know much about Mexico. Um, but that was one thing that, oh, let's, let's get the shampoo here so we don't have to look for it. Because who knows how it works there. I mean, there is a lot of things that you have to learn how to how they work here. But buying shampoo and soap is not one of them. This reminds me of one of my grandfather's favorite quotes, um, or one of my favorite quotes of my grandfather's is when he was first coming to the United States. People asked him, or somebody asked him, "Are there still cannibals in Chile?" And he stopped and thought for a moment. And he said, no, we ate them all. <laughs> I, I wish I had, I wish I had his dry wit. 
But but that's that's emblematic of the kind of ignorance of people. And I I knew Mexico was probably. I don't know. I'm gonna have to look up and see what my prejudice. The the yeah. one prejudice I had about Mexico was I did think it was a lot more crime ridden. Mm-hmm. That and I I was not dissuaded of this impression from the house that my the, yeah the house and, that I was taking to. And I wouldn't say that that's not true because just in the past weeks there's been a lot of robberies on the streets you know and traffic. Just people having a pistol and going to the car and demanding for the for the wallets and phones. I don't know, and then taking off. That's happened a lot in the past few weeks. And and the and, fun- and, and that yeah. just happens. And uh, it it's, it comes in waves apparently. Um, in this in Mexico City in general, it's it's we've talked about that it's, it's rather safe. Um, but it does happen. It's much more normal than in other countries. The, the one prejudice that I that it took me a long time to get it took me a long time to calm down and feel of Mexico City as largely safe one of the first things that I looked for when I I mean one of the first things I looked for when I had a moment away from my now ex was guns it's like where are the guns and it wasn't until I and I know this sounds this sounds really weird this is mm-hmm, gonna sound mm-hmm. This is going to sound weird, but... And that was the, the funny thing is that I've... I have accidentally stumbled <laughs> upon large caches of weapons here by total accident. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I was, I was looking for a... Uh, I was looking for a part... I, I, every, all of my best stories in Mexico start with me trying to solve the water problem in my apartment building. <laughs> But I was looking for uh, this part of the of a valve for my. Now I know exactly which part it is, and more importantly, I know which much more common part I can use, change some of the washers and what things to file down on this part to make it fit. Um, uh, for which it, my building's very old and has very odd fixtures, but eventually it's it, the standard word for it is an arbor, a tree. Mm-hmm. But then another way is like, no, this is an arbor, this is cartucho. Of course, same word for a cartridge of ammunition. <laughs> and, in the, and I'm not going to tell you where this was, but in the search for this part, because of a misunderstanding of what I was looking for, and because I look like a sketchy dude who looks like he'd be <laughs> looking for guns, managed to stumble upon the things that when I first got here was trying to find. Because I didn't feel safe here at all. I felt like I needed to be armed to walk around, which is definitely not the case. And I think it's a bad idea to do that. So the, the I mean, when you're not, when you don't have very specialized training yeah. in close quarters use of firearms, yes, you're more likely to hurt yourself or other people that you care about than any potential assailant if you carry a firearm. But even with the the advent of just open unlicensed carry in the U, in the U.S., there hasn't been this massive increase in accidental shootings that people were expecting. What I mean, and this is maybe a tip to another tourist that comes here, if you, I haven't been in that situation. Catherine hasn't either. If you get into the 
And this is a rule of thumb that we try to remember. You get into the situation that somebody draws a weapon on you and demands whatever they want. They want your money and your phone. That's the rule Then, of thumb everywhere. Yeah, here, but here in Germany you don't have to know that. Here you have to know that. Just give it to them and don't do anything. They still tell Because, you that in Germany though, don't you? No, you never think, why would you think about that? It doesn't happen. Maybe there's places where that happens, not on places where I live. So, can we, they want your money, give them your money, whatever they want, don't do anything, because main reason for that is if it doesn't go the way they expect it to go, they get nervous. And people do shoot each other. Uh, I remember one story, it happened, we, of course we didn't notice, but it happens around the corner from our old apartment. Somebody sat in the car, he wanted to go into the garage, and somebody came up to him, pointed a gun at him, said, give me your car. He said no. He got shot dead. And the guy left. The shooter. That's apparently what happens here. And so... Yeah. Now, now, granted, maybe that coming from America, that happens a lot of times there, too. It doesn't happen in Germany. That's I why... I don't think you can say that it doesn't it happen. It doesn't ever, but it's not an issue. It, it is it, really not an issue. And here, we had to get used to that to that to, to just have the idea in the back of my heads that this could happen and if it happens how to deal with it what a great end to the episode about how rich mexico is <laughs> or is this about how complicated it is or i i think the the title of the episode should be <laughs> yeah we finally just We finally settled on the topic of Mexico is complicated, which I think has been my my theme for discussing all things Mexico. Yeah. But of course, shout outs to everybody on. I, I, I carefully thought about this. Of course, Bob interacts with us a lot, Sebastian. Um, Cheetah. Cheetah. And the many the many people that I'm forgetting because I, I did not make as organized a list as I thought I was going to beforehand. And and please interact. Let us know. Yeah, and ask questions. We've been living here for a while, and I don't know what I what I got used to, and what is still I know what's still strange to me, but I don't know what I got used to. But it's a hard thing to ask. How do you yeah. ask? You know, if I say what what is what's hard about what's what's hard about getting used to living in Germany? I don't know. I never lived in Germany. I know a lot about weird things no, like that. I don't know what I what I what's maybe interesting to Germans. It's, it's or to, to other people who don't live here. Maybe it's not interesting. We can talk about where to go to the beach. That's interesting. I was not much of a beach person before I came here. <laughs> And beach culture is much different here. Oh yeah. Than it is. Oh yeah. <laughs> than it is. I, I guess in California. In California, you know, beach culture is one thing. The beaches are. Yeah. I, I want to hear your stories from the beach because I don't know. I, if you want, I don't know if you want to hear about my stories from the beach. <laughs> it involved. One of them involves this place called La Vaca Loca. Oh, God. Having to... It, ugh. I, yeah, ugh. We'll find a new topic for next week. I think we know what the topic is for next week. Yeah? It was, don't we? What were you going to bring uh, up? Oh, oh, should we talk la about it? La Dictadura yeah. Perfecta. Yeah. That's the topic for next week. Okay. And mm -hmm. I, I, have a good, I have a good video clip to go along with the show notes for that Very one. Very good. 
Alright. We do the racism thing some other time. <laughs> oh actually no, let's do race I actually I like that one better. Let's do that one. Let's let's do let's do Mexican racism. Okay. <laughs> this is more controversial. Let's get into more trouble. Well. Until next time. <laughs> Bye.